0: Welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. This is a special bonus episode we're recording in in conjunction with the Deporting Ottoman Americans series about cases of people Ottoman-born, deported from the United States, or at least ordered to be deported. Visit our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, to learn more about that series. My guest in this phone conversation is Tori Hester. Tori, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. Tori Hester is Associate Professor of History at St. Louis University. She's the author of a new book published in 2017 entitled Deportation The Origins of U.S. Policy, and that's out from University of Pennsylvania Press. Tori, I'm really glad to have you on the program. On the Ottoman History Podcast, I've normally been speaking to people who work on the history of the Ottoman Empire, the early modern period, the modern Middle East. And uh, so it's a real treat to be able to speak with a scholar working way outside of my own expertise, but on a topic that's so relevant, not only to this project we're working on, but just like relevant to my life as an American in 2018. Uh, And later on in our conversation, I hope we can speak more about the present context to the extent that you'd like to. But first, I'd just like to give our listeners a sense of what's going on in this new book entitled, quite simply, Deportation. Um, You talk about deportation policy, not just as a domestic issue for the American government, but something that was formulated in the international sphere. And you actually refer to an, quote, international regime that facilitated U.S. deportations. Can you explain more concretely how this international deportation regime was developed and how it impacted the U.S.? Sure. First
1: of all, thank you again, Chris, for having me on the podcast. It's uh, um, a great opportunity to talk about this issue that matters kind of internationally, but in at this moment in U.S. history, um, it matters particularly. So when I say an international regime that facilitated U.S. deportations, what I mean by that is in the late 19th and early 20th century, the U.S. federal government got into the business of regulating immigrants, and part of that was de. Now, previous to this period, states had regulated immigration to the U.S., and only two or three actually did much regulation. And only two of them, New York and Massachusetts, had actually removed immigrants. Throughout the world, some other nations uh, and Policies, removed immigrants primarily through a unilateral process. But as the 19th century um, developed, nations started creating bilateral immigrant removal po- policies. And what that meant was, for example, when France wanted to remove an immigrant, they would just put... They, they would put a German on the train and send that person to Germany. And in the late 19th century, some European states started saying, we'll not accept these expelled immigrants without negotiations. So very quickly in the late 19th century, in order for one country to remove an immigrant, it required a bilateral process. Right. So when in the, in the 1880s, when the U.S. federal government began deporting people, they created a deportation policy, which was it's unilateral, Uh, and that required the U.S. government to obtain the approval of the nation-state or empire on the receiving end of that. So that's one dynamic of why this is an international legal regime. Uh, Another facet of that is built into the international system of the 19th, 20th, and still to this day, is the fact that emigrants abroad uh, are protected by their consulate, consular officers, by by their nation of citizenship. And deportation policy, one integrates that structure into it. In, and what I mean by that is if a person in the U.S., an immigrant, is facing deportation, she or he can sometimes request the support and defense of one of their consular officers to try and prevent a deportation. So U.S. deportation policy is constructed at the national level, in, especially in terms of the categories of people who become deportable, and the, the numbers of people deportable is also highly determined, it's determined in large part by national considerations, but it is also inherently national because without it's, this international bilateral process, the U.S. could not carry out its deportations. Uh, and and there are some protections that people facing deportation can access through international law.
0: Right. And so you've talked about a couple shifts there one moving from the state to the federal level in terms of regulating borders and people's movement across them and then two is this uh shift from deportation which we might call expulsion quite simply just kicking someone out of the country or a particular place towards um, a a bilateral and reciprocal process where someone who is deported uh, is acknowledged as having legally been deported by the receiving state. And without that, um, you know, that deportation cannot take place. Right. Um, I've got a lot of questions about that, but I mean, one thing I want to ask about is what is the role of just passports in this, just the creation of passport regimes? People weren't, you know, people didn't have passports going back to time immemorial, right? This is a relatively new instrument. Um, And how was that tied into this development?
1: Over the late 19th and early 20th century, increasingly documents play a major role in the experience and regulation of migration. In terms of U.S. policy that I examine in my book, which covers like 1880s through the 1920s, U.S. immigration officials don't look to passports, but they do look I mean they look at passports but most of the immigrants that they process don't have passports they have other kinds of documentation and in fact there are some cases where federal officials believe that a person is an immigrant but there's not documents that prove that or at other times an immigrant argues they have they have legal status but there's not a thick documentary paper trail that helps that immigrant defend against the deportation. Passports after the 1920s become more important to travel, and they just become a part of the documentary regime that immigration officials look or uh, and to process these
0: cases. And so in our series, Deporting Ottoman Americans, we're looking at people born in the Ottoman Empire who are being deported from the United States. And most of them that I'm looking at actually came to the United States when the Ottoman Empire still existed. And they didn't have passports because people didn't need passports to go to the U.S. necessarily. And there's a lot of diplomatic correspondence involved in trying to obtain passports uh, from a receiving state for these deportees, that, for example, Greece mm-hmm. or Turkey is supposed to issue a passport uh, for this person. Mm-hmm. Was that a fundamental aspect of this new international regime, or is that something that's really specific to cases like what we're looking at with the Ottoman Empire, where indeed nationality was unusually ambiguous?
1: There, that officials oftentimes had to parse through some tricky paper trails, and it it, it was not uncommon that U.S. officials had to contact consular officers in the country of origin. So it's not just in uh, the countries and the states of the former Ottoman Empire. It took place uh, in almost every case, including Mexico, Canada, Britain, Germany, and China.
0: So you've kind of set up this distinction between sort of the old way in which states got rid of people mm-hmm. uh, and this new way that is based on a, a, a more of a system, you call it international re- regime, bilateral uh, agreements. Uh, and really this system is maturing during the 1920s and 30s, which is when the U.S. is also really growing as a major deporter of people <laughs> instead of just a recipient of immigrants as it was the largest... Recipient of immigrants in the world and I have a question that pertains specifically to the mass deportation of Mexicans during the 1930s mm-hmm. uh, in some cases Mexican Americans we should say right. uh, from the United States because this is a, it's a very large we're talking about hundreds of thousands of people um, was this carried out in that bilateral manner was it that old-style just put them on a train what was taking place right there in that sort of pivotal right. moment so
1: in the 1930s, you have both formal deportations which are carried out through a bilateral process. most, however, were carried out in an extra legal manner, and so scholars look at this and they say, and they label this the Mexican repatriation where and and some scholars debate the actual numbers, but we 're looking at probably between half a million to a million. Mexican and many Mexican-Americans either left the U.S. or were forced to leave the U.S. Uh, Los Angeles is, is a case that many people have looked at. Uh, there's some important scholarship coming out, but part of what was happening is deportation is a formal legal process. There were limits on who could be deported in the 1930s. Now, during the Great Depression, There were many white Americans who wanted to remove and deport Mexicans and also many um, U.S. citizen children of Mexican immigrants. Deportation is a a legal process and the people that many people, for example, in in Los Angeles government thought should be deported could not actually deported because either they were U.S. citizens or they hadn't done anything wrong in U.S. law. So they carried out these these campaigns, which became, become known as repatriations, where they, like city governments or with state efforts, actually remove people, and 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 this process called Mexican repatriation, where you see the large numbers of people, is facilitated by not just local governments, but the Mexican government is a part of this process, too. And so here you have scholarship by people like Francisco Valderrama or George Sanchez that really look at the ways in which the Mexican government is involved. But so in the 1930s, you do have this, an uptick in the numbers of Mexicans deported, but they're only in the tens of thousands. It's the hundreds of thousands that are carried out kind of
0: extra legally. And as you said, this may have had a bilateral component as well, but it it points to the fact that just because the U.S. is increasing its sort of systematic legal instruments for deporting people, that's not mutually exclusive with also just some of the largest wholesale, uh, right. they're, they're called repatriations in this case, but expulsions of people from the U.S.
1: Right, and it's really wrapped up in the racism of the 1930s and also something that a scholar from UCLA, Devin Carvato, calls racial naturalizations, in which many white Americans read ethnic identity, like a Mexican heritage, as foreignness. And so many white policymakers in the 1930s, especially in places like Los Angeles, saw a person of Mexican heritage and using kind of racial, uh, racist assumptions Mark them as outsiders and try to exclude them from some of the programs that would help people endure the Great Depression, but also some of these policymakers scapegoated people of Mexican heritage as causes of the, of the
0: Depression. Well, in that response, you've actually pointed to, you know, one of the other questions I wanted to ask about is, which is this shift you discuss in, in, in your new book in terms, in, in terms of why people were being deported or ostensibly what was the legal basis? Uh, what was the justification? Race was an aspect um, and I think continues to be an aspect in, in debates about uh, debates surrounding deportation. But you talk about the rise of sort of economic thinking and economic rationale uh, in, in deportation. Can you tell me more about that?
1: Sure. I'll start very quickly with uh, an overview of the deportable categories and then move to this econo- and talk more about economic categories. Now, in 1882, really when the federal government got into the business of deporti- deporting people, the only category of deportable immigrants in the U.S. were uh, Chinese workers. And this, they were deportable under the laws of Chinese exclusion that said Chinese workers could not Lawfully immigrate to the U.S. and if they immigrated, they could be if they immigrated to the U.S. in violation of the law, they could be deported afterwards. Now, in 1882, there's another immigration law that has other immigration exclusions. So you couldn't be a public charge, couldn't immigrate if you uh, had a criminal record, prostitutes, people who um, had other kinds of mental deficiency were excluded, but there were no deportation provisions. So in 1882, really it's Chinese immigrants who are deportable. Um, Other immigrants can't lawfully immigrate to the U.S., but there's no power to deport them. In in the late 1880s and by 1893, the federal government has synced up the deportable, the excludable categories with deportation categories. So by 18. uh, 93, for example, if someone in Canada uh, a, a, is a prostitute and they move to the U.S., they've moved into the U.S. in violation of an excludable category, and then now they can be deported. But between eight, the 1880s through the 1910s, there, except for people of cher- Chinese heritage, there are time limits on deportations. And so that if an immigrant lived in the U.S. between one to five years, depending upon a law, they were no longer deportable. So that time in the U.S. regularized a person's status. Now, uh, especially after 1917, the federal government expands its power to deport people beyond many of those time limits. And they start basing this on economic grounds. And in these economic grounds are some pretty typical, straightforward deportation cases. So people who fall dependent on the growing welfare state, still pretty small, can be deported. Uh, But also these economic categories by 1917 really have started, immigration authorities start to use those as proxies especially for other kinds of deportations on racial grounds. For example, while there's a deportable category for Chinese immigrants, there's not an explicit racial category for people coming from, for example, India or people coming from Japan, but immigration authorities carrying out a larger kind of um, anti-Asian agenda start using... Exclude economic grounds to deport people of people of color.
0: And what do you mean by economic grounds? Mm,
1: well, that, specifically? That's that. Yeah. So there are two, econ- there are three economic grounds that I refer to. One is public charges. A second is likely to become a public charge. And a third is a contract laborer. I'll talk about the likely to become a public charge here. So, At the turn of the 20th century, there's a small but growing migration stream out of India to Canada and the U.S. And immigration officials, in part self-directed, but also responding to white racist communities in the U.S. West, uh, mobilized to stop this immigration stream. And one front in that larger effort is to say... That if Indians come to the United States, uh, South Asians come to the United States, they'll utilize the likely to become a public charge category and deport them on those grounds. Now, the likely to become a public charge provision in, in U.S. law is a pretty generic law. It says you can be deported if you're likely to become a public charge. Now, in the hands of immigration officials, they use two kinds of seemingly contradictory logic to apply this for South Asians in the early 20th century. And one way they say it is white communities in the U.S. West are so racist, they're not going to hire people from India. And hence, they will become public charges. They won't be able to support themselves. A second version of, of, of racist logic is um, that many white communities uh, and immigration officials say that different racial minorities, and this is here, you're getting all kinds of racial scripts and racist stereotypes that, for example, South Asians aren't, uh, aren't as hardworking, and therefore, as their lack of work ethic means they'll become public charges at some point. So, immigration officials start using these kinds of racist logic and applying the likely to become a public charge provision, and they deport uh, South Asians on these categories. These categories are also then applied to people, have also been by that time applied to Japanese immigrants, and they're also increasingly being applied to people, immigrants from Mexico.
0: Oh, that's an interesting point, you know. if For those who say it's not race, it's class. This is one of those great examples that shows that often the, the economic logic um, is actually based on a, a racial logic or racial rationale for deportation.
1: In in some of these early cases, it really operates as a proxy. So you're really right on that.
0: And does it go the other way that there's actually a pull factor that certain groups are racially stigmatized or, you know, get marked as non-white specifically because of some aspect of their social or economic life in the United States? Do does that, Is it a two-way street sort of this linking of criminality, not criminality per se, but this linking of people who are socially undesirable and people who are racially undesirable?
1: Yes. And this is particularly important in the history of Mexican immigration to the U.S. and the history of race over the 20th century. So in the the late 19th and early 20th century, there's not a lot of people being deported. And a lot of the focus of immigration authorities is on Chinese immigrants. By 1917, and it picks up in the 20s and 30s, immigration officials start applying these kinds of logic in the deportation regime. So, Mexican communities, Mexican immigrants, are targets for immigration authorities to carry out deportations. And they're carrying out deportations on racist logic. And once once then immigrant communities become targets of deportations, then this adds to the way that race is created in the U.S. So, perhaps I can explain this a little bit clearly through the case. Uh, In 1917, the U.S. government gets into a guest worker program. It, it, It runs its first guest worker program. This program applies to Canadians, uh, people from the Bahamas, but it's largely a program of Mexican immigrants. About seventy thousand Mexican immigrants come to the U.S. as guest workers between nineteen seventeen and nineteen twenty one. The guest worker program says uh, an uh, an immigrant can come to the U.S. temporarily. For the length of their contract to work, once that contract is over, they need to return to their country, uh, and if they don't, they become deportable. And so, this small group of guest workers, mostly from Mexico, is deportable in a way other immigrants aren't. This means that their ability to bring their families, to change jobs, basic civil liberties and civil rights are constrained by deportability. As the federal government expands its deportation regimes and, and it deports tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands, then up to a million Mexicans, this stigma that someone is deportable becomes a part of the racial script that, de- that defines race. And it not only is a part of the racial script, it has material impacts on the community and the kinds of rights That
0: people have. Well, I think we should talk more about that when we, at the end of our conversation, when we connect the dots to kind of bring us up to the present and thinking about how this history uh, is relevant today. But first I was hoping to, and so much of this for our listeners who are tuning in and are following what's going on in the U S right now, we're recording in June, 2018, they can sort of see how this resonates. Um, but I I just wanna ask a couple sort of smaller questions that are particularly relevant to the series we're working on uh, for deporting Ottoman Americans where we encounter a lot of, as you said, a lot of different reasons for deportability, a lot of ways in which someone can be deportable. And one thing I've been wanting to find out more about is the case of psychiatric patients who are deported. That is people who are in asylums receiving treatment for uh mental illness, uh, and that the US is able to deport or tries to deport, uh, ostensibly because, you know, they're they cost money, they're public charges. Now, thinking from today's context, though I'm I'm I admit that I'm not any kind of lawyer, uh, that just seems like a huge violation of someone's rights to deport deport somebody who is probably not capable of consenting to any such thing, mentally incapacitated in some way. Uh, how was the U.S. able to justify that? Were there no laws at the time against that? And is that still legal or has that been resolved somehow?
1: In the early years of the 20th century, people could be deported for medical reasons, including psychiatric, psychi- because of psychiatric illnesses. But there are two big limits on that on those grounds for deportation. And one is the law said that the cause for an illness had to originate outside of the United States. Mm -hmm. So if a psychiatric illness was caused by something in the U.S., that did not trigger a deportation. Now, in the early 20th century, it was really difficult to determine where a psychiatric illness happened, so there are not there are not a lot of public charge deportations because of this this issue. Things, ha- an illness had to be its origins had to be determined, and so in a few cases that it did happen, there was a paper trail of maybe a mental illness pre existing the immigration. Um, also, again, this is not a time when doctors have a sophisticated understanding of psych, psychiatric illness. So mm-hmm. this is not a, a, a huge category. A second limit on deportations under public charge, which is really about people who are ill well, in large part, uh, is the fact that there are time limits. So if a person lives in the U.S. between one to five years, unless they're of Chinese heritage, those time limits protect a person from deportation. So of the public charge deportations for illnesses that are carried out, the federal government starts to expand in small ways. And some of this was more, more theoretic than theoretical in practice, but the federal government, when they were deporting, Someone, for example, who had a mental illness from, from a hospital had a separate program for deporting that person, and it, also, it meant that the um, immigration authorities somehow cared for them and provide for their care, both on transportation through to the U.S. to a port, the port, and the archives have records of this. There were some international conferences where steamships and federal and, and different governments set up protocols for transporting sick and ill deportees. And so, in practice, this wasn't always carried out, but sometimes the mentally ill were supposed to have uh, doctors on board that cared for them and then also wouldn't release them for example, over in Europe, unless uh, there was a person to receive and sign off for their custody. So, it doesn't have a lot to do with consent at this in these years or medical confidentiality. It has more to do... The immigration authorities um, are trying to puzzle out a system that will facilitate the deportation of a person, but with a pretty thin infrastructure to help address their medical needs.
0: And so, I mean, one of the things that maybe we won't talk about, but it's so obvious when talking about this is that for people who are being deported, if they have a lawyer, which most of them did not, right, it becomes exponentially greater uh, likelihood that they won't be deported because there's all of these limitations that are possibly in place right Um, but again a lot of the people who who are being deported are those who are most vulnerable and i want to ask about the experience of women with the rise of deportation during this period because you know i've encountered many cases of women being deported and, and they're they're usually being deported for different reasons than men um and i think uh one example and you 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 might have mentioned it already is that of you know the preoccupation with women's sexuality and and the charge of prostitution. In our series, we've looked at uh, a woman. She, she came to the U.S. as a child, but she was uh, convicted of prostitution. She had been from Czechoslovakia, but she had been married in the United States. And as a result of her marriage, Czechoslovakia claimed that she had lost her nationality. Um, and had taken the nationality of her husband. And that's the reason why we're looking at her. She had happened to marry a Syrian American. The U.S. tried to deport her to Syria. You can imagine that the French government in Syria didn't buy into this. Uh, But it was still, you know, an interesting kind of thing that could only happen to a woman in that time. I I would think I didn't come across any men in such a situation, although the majority of cases I looked at have been men. So I guess my question is... What are the ways in which the deportation policies reflected gender biases uh, in the same way that they were definitely racially biased, even when ostensibly targeting crime or economic logic of some variety?
1: So both immigration law and then the implementation in policy targeted women quite differently than men. And an important category, as you mentioned, is this prostitution category. Another important category is actually that likely to become a public charge provision and how that operated in practice was that many, many cases that you read and then uh, many deportation cases that I read have immigration officials making the argument that women, because they're not economic actors the way that men are during these years are likely to become a public charge because especially if they're single, there's an assumption by immigration officers that because they don't have a male provider, a husband, a father, that they will not be able to support themselves. So this becomes the grounds for some deportations and even more deportable, more important deportable categories. The first one I mentioned, which is uh, the kind of the anti-prostitution provision and From the 1890s through 1910, this targeted especially women, but it also included procurers, pimps, people who ran the sex industry. And it said that if an immigrant came to the U.S. to practice prostitution, they were deportable. And as you can imagine, most of the policing of the sex trade picked up women and identified women. And so women were deported under these anti-prostitution provisions. Now, this is a particular important category, not just for the experience of immigrant women, but also the federal government's power of deportation. Because in 1910, federal authorities, but also reformers and law enforcement throughout, not just the United States, but really around the world is wrapped up in something called this white slavery panic. And some of us have heard of it. And for other people, it's this racialized and gendered panic over women's sexuality and the sex trade. There's an assumption that there's this global trade in women, not just white women, but also women of color, but predominantly white women. And many white reformers are worried about white women. And there's a larger global movement. There's international conferences, treaties about constraining the white slave trade. And in the U.S., one of the ways that this this manifests and changes deportation policy is the federal government really for the first time changes laws so that action on U S soil can trigger deportation. So before this time, all action really had to be uh, all deportable grounds originated outside the U S before an immigrant before an immigration. So if someone came from Canada, for example, in 1903, That Canadian lived in the U.S. for a year, and he murdered someone. That crime was not a deportable offense, because it was action on the U.S. soil. But in 1910, as an effort effort to clamp down on this white slave trade and global prostitution, the U.S. government said that prostitution in the U.S., could trigger a deportation. So here you get the federal government getting into the uh, business of social control in the United States for the first time. They would expand this in 1917, and now to today, actions on U.S. soil is a major category of deportability. Uh, when I talk about an era. When you couldn't be deported for actions on U.S. soil, it oftentimes gives someone's pause because it's it's so naturalized a category in 2018.
0: Yeah. Of course, we might take it for granted that the main point is what they've done since they've been in the U.S., that they've, they've been a bad migrant, so to speak. Right. And that their back history would be less important. But conceptually, it also makes sense that stuff done on U.S. soil is not deportable simply for the fact that if you're here, you're living here and you've done it you've done it as an American and you'll be punished as an American and you'll face the legal system, but that this is somehow a domestic affair. And to see that transition is is sort of fascinating.
1: Yeah. There are key moments of transition and we can talk about those. I think that's where the interview is going. Uh, But I wanted to bring back to one point about the way that gender and women's experiences in this, in the early 20th century was affected by was unique experience if I may. (laughs) And so one of the ways, it's an intersection of the way that marriage law works with citizenship law. uh, And that is a woman's citizenship was dependent on her husband's. So when, and this goes back to your case of the Czechoslovakian woman marrying the Syrian American. So in the early 20th century, when a woman married a man, her citizenship automatically defaulted as is consistent with U.S. law and policy. There's an exception here for people from Asia, especially people from China. But for everybody else, if a Canadian woman came to the U.S., married a U.S. citizen, she be automatically became a U.S. citizen. So sometimes immigration authorities wanted to deport such a, such a woman, but they were unable to, in part because of this women's dependent citizenship.
0: Right. But then, of course, in turn, you know, we've got another case in the series where a woman gets divorced and her ex-husband actually tries to get her deported. Because once they're not married anymore, then, yeah, I guess she is deportable.
1: Right. And this uh, and this maybe it comes back to your earlier question about documentation. There are some thorny cases where officials Scramble to find a country to deport a woman after she's been after she's divorced her U.S. citizen husband, and there's some efforts by immigration and State Department officials to deport women um, who's who they argue have automatically lost their citizenship, and oftentimes the country, for example, Canada will will refuse that deportation because they argue that there's a though a woman is still a US citizen but it's kind of a quagmire and it's really worked out on a case by case basis oftentimes uh, i came across a fi- uh, some files where there's almost a negotiation between immigration officials from both sides of the deportation saying if you'll accept this case we'll accept the likes from From your can- country. So there are times when the U.S. government said to Canada, just accept this case, and we'll accept similar cases uh, when Canada deports uh, a woman on, on the same ground.
0: And that's so fascinating for a lot of reasons, but, you know, it points to the fact that these immigration services, these uh, law enforcement services, these all these bureaus and... and uh, means of enforcement, they sort of take on a life of their own. Like, why would states be trading with each other <laughs> these undesirables? Well, because the employees who are charged with enforcement um, look good when they affect successful deportations, right? Like that there's a mutual interest by the, the officials involved to do their job, basically. Right, right. But uh, I mean, it's it's also a dark irony that, you know, we talked about women and and this issue of prostitution the law being created ostensibly to protect women from being trafficked i guess trying to use diplomatic means to deport a woman to somewhere where she has no business living has no connection is sort of another form of trafficking so there's a there's a dark irony there but i want to i want to kind of pick up on something we mentioned a few minutes ago to conclude our conversation and, and, you know just talking about how Um, deportability has changed over time. And I want to bring us up to the present moment. And there's a lot we could talk about. We could talk endlessly about what's going on now and how it relates to the past. But I want to kind of raise the question via your 2015 article, Deportability and the Carceral State. Carceral state, of course, uh, referring to the U.S. government's um, incarceration of people, the prison system. And you point out that Illegal immigration is essentially the most common crime that people are in jail for today. I didn't actually know that until I read your article, and it really points to, you know, the way in which criminality and migranthood have become deeply intertwined not just in the American imaginary, but also within the institutions of the state, the legal system, the criminal justice system.
1: So, since the 1980s, as the US prison populations, both at the state and federal levels, exploded. You have the criminal justice system intertwining with the immigration system in new ways. So you see since the 1980s an explosion in deportations for criminal grounds. And there are really kind of two or three, but I'll I'll talk about two ways that deportations on criminal grounds became becomes a major factor in the U.S. And, and immigration scholars and some legal scholars have called this intertwining crimmigration. So one of those grounds is since the 1980s, there are more people in prison than ever before. And as a part of that legislation, especially on the war of drugs, there was also an expansion in the categories of deportation for criminal status. So, especially by 96, the federal government removed many of the time limits that applied to deportations. So... From 96 on, sometimes a person who immigrated when they were very young, lived in the U.S. for 20, 25 years, then did time for a state crime, were deportable because time limits had been removed. So you see, with the growth of prison populations at the state level, some changes in immigration law, more people are deported from state prisons. Now, the statistic you were referring to is as the most common crime is actually a federal crime. And here I'm related. I'm pointing to kind of a second foundation of this criminalization system. And that is if a person migrates to the U S outside of the law without the right documents or overstays a the mm-hmm. visa, they're in the U S in violation of the law. This is not a crime. So if they're picked up by immigration authorities and removed and returned, US law now calls deportations a removal or a return. So if that person is removed and returned, if that person immigrates to the US after a removal or a return, this is this is a federal crime. And over the last fifteen years, the federal government prosecutes the crime of reentry and it's just slightly higher than federal convictions. For drug related crimes. So there are more people, so we're talking about, you know, between 32 and 33 percent of all people in federal prisons are sentenced annually for cr- criminal, sorry, for drug related crimes. Just slightly higher are criminal conv- convictions for immigration related crimes, and almost all of those are for a re entry after. Uh, a removal, return, and deportation. So people are in federal prisons. The federal prisons are filled with people because they are deportable, not because they, can, they carried out a violent crime or a part of uh, uh, drug trafficking, but because they entered in violation uh, of immigration law.
0: I mean, it's an incredible point. It's an incredible statistic. And to think that the number of people who are in prison for trafficking themselves is greater than the number of people in federal prison for trafficking drugs speaks to sort of the moment we're in. And so I wanna conclude by asking the question of why should we care, not because we don't care. Probably most of the people who listen to this podcast care quite a bit. And, and both of us care quite a bit about this history of deportation and care quite a bit about what's going on in the present. But how are they linked? Uh, how, does the, how does knowing about this history of deportation uh, speak to our present? Uh, why should we know about it? How is it relevant?
1: There's a lot of reasons why it's relevant. So I'll just kind of list off some of the factors and see if I can swing around to some artful way to conclude the interview. Uh, one of the reasons it's important is right now the U.S. carries out hundreds of thousands of deportations each year. And this affects the rights. Of immigrants, it affects the rights of U.S. citizens. So, deportations just individually affect family members. Uh, in the U.S. right now, about 33% of people on U.S. soil have are either foreign-born or have one U.S. foreign-born parent or a sibling. Uh, even broader than that are the number of, of people either who are immigrants or they work with immigrants. So the ways in which people are deportable just has this spin-out effect to U.S. citizens and to all kinds of immigrants. Another way that it is incredibly important is this is the way that the federal government carries out immigration policy, and it create in creating deportability, it has become a major factor in how race is made in this country. So at this moment, when presidential politics, uh, politics more broadly, is so racialized. Uh, I think this is understanding the history of deportation and how deportation has been used as a proxy for race and continues to use, to serve as a proxy for race. It's really important to question that and push back against that in order to create social justice and to fight racism. Uh, another way that this is incredibly important is these categories in deportability are constructed. So in the late 19th, early 20th century, when the federal government got into deportation, it had these categories. And when I talk about my book, oftentimes people are struck by the esoteric nature of some of these categories, that you could be deported from being an, in, an idiot, an imbecile, an alcoholic. Over time, these categories, lawmakers changed. But these are not fixed categories. And so we can do something about them and we can change them to make them more humane. But also, I think it's it's bad policy to have a system that creates deportability at the level that we currently do. I think it's bad finances. Also, it undermines rights and liberties in the U.S. more broadly, but also it factors into poverty and global migrations in ways that. That come back to the point about how this is an international deportation regime, because if someone is deported, it undermines uh, oftentimes a family's ability to earn wages and economic stability, and so that the u s deportation regime and the the numbers of people deported doesn't just affect people in the u s it's it, it and if you look in in central and uh, in South America these days you can see the impact of this deportation policy more broadly.
0: Absolutely. And you know, of course throughout this now I guess we're we're all, we're in just about an hour in this conversation I've been constantly reminded by you know talking about the past how we see analogs to some of the things we've been talking about in the present. Studying history tells us that you know we've been down this road before. Um, and there's all sorts of ways in which knowing that uh, can, of course, be uh, powerful, but I think also can help, you know, inform people uh, to formulate uh, better decisions, better opinions about something that every uh, American citizen has the opportunity to actually vote on, right? We, we have to remind our listeners that during the rise of the deportation state, you know, the United States was a democracy and that the uh, policies that supported immigration, quotas, and 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 deportation were popular and that it's not just uh, a tyrannical state run amok. It's actually the state that represents us. Well, Tori, uh, it's been nice talking with you. <laughs> I think um, as we keep working on this Deporting Ottoman American series, I might have to call you back up again to get some of your opinions, uh, specifically on the issues of morality and criminality and how they relate to... Uh, discourses surrounding immigration. We've touched on it a little here, but there's still much more to say. So thanks again for being on the program with us.
1: Thanks again. This has really been a pleasure to talk about these really important issues. Thanks.
0: The pleasure is all ours, and I will be in touch uh, as need be. Uh, But for our listeners who have tuned in and want to learn more, they can just go and check out the publications of Tori Hester. We've got the book we mentioned out from university of pennsylvania press deportation the origins of u.s policy also that article from the journal of american history we mentioned deportability in the carceral state that is uh, essential reading on the topic i think remember to visit ottoman Podcast.com for a full bibliography and reading list on our subject and to check out uh, the episodes of our deporting ottoman american series Uh, that's all for this episode thanks for tuning in and join us next time